How about that service last week, by the way? That was a historic thing for the city of Carpinteria. That's never happened in this city. Uh, I know so. My parents have lived here for 40 years. I asked them, and uh, in their time, it's never happened in the city that, you know, almost a couple thousand people worshipped downtown in the street like that. That was incredible, and yeah, give God glory. Saw at least a couple dozen people come to the Lord and get saved. Saw one of them sitting in front row at first service today, so uh, making disciples. Glory to God. Okay, we are in Colossians chapter 3, and today we're dealing with verse 14. But we're going to read verses 12 through 14 to give us a little context, and we'll mention some of those things throughout the message. So let's start reading in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. It says, And so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and in it we find things that are not at all mundane, things that are supernatural. And you have called us in your word to a supernatural love for one another. And at the outset, Lord, we just confess together that we fall short too often. We ask for mercy today, Lord. But we ask for your redeeming power to come and redeem our lives, to take selfish men and women and make us into lovers of others to take those who are self-absorbed and self-consumed and make us self-sacrificial. God, give us hearts after your own heart. Teach us to love today, Lord. I know that we'll be convicted by your word, but we want to be transformed by your spirit. We want the power of the cross to be manifest through that perfect representation of love, that incredible act of love. Jesus, you draped yourself in humanity. You were mocked beaten, spit upon, crucified on our behalf. Then you rose from the dead that we might have new life. Lord, give us new life today. We want to walk in newness. We want to walk in this love that you're calling us to. And Lord, you know my heart. You know I feel unable and unworthy and just like the wrong guy to teach this message, Lord. But I thank you that today you haven't called me to preach Brit Merrick. You've called me to preach Jesus Christ and to teach your word. And so, Lord, I ask that you would anoint my thoughts and my lips, that you would be preeminent, that you and your love and the manifestation thereof would be exalted in our hearts and our minds and our community now, Lord, as we dive into your word. Transform us for the furtherance of your kingdom and your glory. Everybody said amen. 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 Well, we're told here in our text today in verse 14 that beyond all those other things mentioned, we are to put on love. And we're told that it is the perfect bond of unity. Another translation says it this way. And the most important piece of clothing you must wear is love. Love is what binds us all together in perfect harmony. And of course, the analogy of clothing or a garment has been employed in the previous verses leading up today. And we've talked about putting off those old garments, that old clothing that denoted and looked like the old life, and putting on the life of Jesus Christ and the characteristics thereof. And today we come to the paramount issue, and that is love. 
And as we talk about love, there, there's much that we could talk about. We could talk about God's love for us. We could talk about the manifestation of our love for God. But we're supposed to narrow in on loving others, and even that is broad in the Bible. We could talk about loving others in general. We could talk about loving your neighbor, which is the second greatest commandment. We could talk about loving the unlovable, which Christians are called to do. We could talk about loving your enemy, which Jesus commanded us to do, which is a radical thing. But none of those are the context for today's message. The context is Christians loving one another. And so I've devised an outline for us to follow today that will hopefully be helpful as we endeavor to do so. Point number one that we'll look at is the requirement of love. After that, we'll look at the biblical definition of love. Very important, because there's a lot of false ideas about love today. What is it exactly? There's a lot of ideas in the world, but today we'll see exactly how the Bible defines love for you and I. And the third thing we'll look at then is the practice of love, how to do it. So number one, the requirement of love. Each one of you knows intuitively, one way or another, that you ought to love others. We all know that. We know that because God has written his moral code upon our hearts. We know that because God in his mercy has given us a conscience. We know that because he has given the world the Holy Spirit to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment and of truth. And so one way or another, call it intuitively for now, we all have this idea that yes, I ought to love others. But for the Christian, for the disciple namely of Jesus Christ, it's much more potent than that. You see, it's not an ought to, maybe, why don't you think about, be nice if you would. But for us, it is a command of scriptures that we love one another. Now, the Lord has to command us for two reasons. Number one, because we're all messed up, ain't we? Gee whiz. And then also, the Lord has to command us, because you know, it's interesting in Christianity, and specifically, I'm talking about our corporate life together. It's Reality Carpenteria here for a moment. It's interesting, because you don't really get to choose who you're a Christian with. You know what I mean? You've got no control, really, over who gets saved and who doesn't. It's not like your circle of best friends that you get to choose, I mean, you come down, you sit down, who's in front of you, right of you, left of you, and back of you, that's who it is, and you're commanded to love them. You might not like them, but you're commanded to love them. You might not have anything in common with them. They might rub you like a grater on cheese, but you're called to love them. It's not an option, it's imperative, it is a command of Scripture. In fact, Jesus put it this way in John 13, verses 34 and 35. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you should also love one another. By, all, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, two points there. Number one, we see that the impetus, the motivation for us loving others is a way that God loves us. It was the same thing two weeks ago when we studied verse 13 where we were told to forgive as we have been forgiven. What's the standard? How much should I forgive? Well, how much has the Lord forgiven you? How freely should I forgive? Well, how freely has the Lord forgiven you? But how often should I forgive? Well, how often does the Lord forgive you? That was the impetus, the motivation, and the model is the forgiveness of God for how we're to forgive others. Now, in the same way, because God so loved us, then we are to love others in the same way. I would say that love is extravagant, wouldn't it, you? That sort of love is lavished on us by the Father through Christ Jesus. 
And so because we've received such incredible love, the Bible makes it very clear that it is a criminal act to then withhold love from one another as kids of the king. So I've been brought into this family of love and to withhold it because of various sundry silly things is criminal in the mind and the heart of God. So the impetus, the motivation, and the model is the love of God for us. We extend that to others. Second thing that I want you to note from that passage that is very potent is this, that our love for one another, Christians, is to be the defining mark on our Christianity. That is how we will be identified, Jesus said, is by our love for one another. He doesn't talk about the gifts. He doesn't talk about the preaching. He doesn't necessarily talk about the giving. He doesn't talk about the buildings. He doesn't talk about the dressing. He doesn't talk about what you don't do. He says that the defining mark, the way that the unregenerate, unbelieving world would identify you and I as followers of Jesus Christ is our love for one another. Now, I've noticed in my life that, well, this. I, I've never heard anybody say, I want to become a Christian because they love each other so much. I can't believe the way they just lavish love and, and forgiveness and giving on each other. I can't believe how wonderfully they get along. I'm just telling you, in my 34 years, I've never heard that. Have you? Raise your hand if, you, if you've heard that. Three people. There was three and a half in the last service. Three people. Three people out of 500 Christians in this room have heard that in, that, in their lifetime. All oh, those Christians, they just love each other so much. I, I just don't hear it that often, but it's supposed to be the defining mark. But how often, my heart grieves, I'm guilty. How often have I heard, oh, Christians, why would I want to be one? They can't even get along with each other. They can't agree about anything. They're slandering, they're backbiting. There's all sorts of sectarianism and they're all split and divided and denominationalized, so on and so forth. How many have heard something along those lines? Raise your hand. Well, hundreds of us in this room. There's a disconnect somewhere, isn't there, people? I mean, something has happened. Jesus ordained, Jesus said, I want people to recognize you as Christians, as my followers, as Christians, by the way you love one another. And yet in my experience, we are seldom recognized for that. So there's a little bit of disconnect. I'm guilty, maybe you're guilty, of disobeying the command of Jesus to love one another in the same way that he loved us. And you know, we really got to think about this as a church because in this community, we're fairly high profile. And I want us to be marked by love. We pray that in our prayer meetings all the time. We want to be marked by love. And there's lots of cool things happening, but do you know that the Bible says that they're all a waste if we don't have love? It says that in 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. We'll look at it in a few minutes. But it says concerning Christians or the church that we could be doing everything else right. We could be practicing the gifts. We could be speaking forth the word of God. We could be speaking prophetically. We could be understanding the deep things of God. We could be uh, overflowing in faith. We could give all our possessions to the poor. We could even present ourselves as martyrs for the Lord. 
But if we have not love, it profits us nothing. It is meaningless, the Bible says. No matter how good everything else is without love, it's meaningless. 1 Corinthians 13.3 says that love is the absolute paramount thing in Christianity. It says, but now abide faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Now, it shouldn't be any wonder to you and I why love is so important. Our entire faith is based upon an act of love. Our entire faith is based upon the love of God. I mean, it's the whole gig, right? For God so... Love the world, he gave his only begotten son. Or Romans 5.8, God had demonstrated his, God has demonstrated his love in that while we were yet sinners, he gave Christ to die for us. Or 1 John 3.1, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. The entirety of our Christianity, the invention of the whole thing is because of love. God didn't have to save you and I. Saved you and I because he loves us. It's kind of the whole point. So then what follows logically is that the manifestation of our Christian life, the outflow of it ought to be primarily one of love. That ought to be, again, the defining mark. That ought to be the thrust of it. The main thing is that the manifestation, the outflow, the working then of Christianity, which is based on an act of love, the cross, should be love. Now I want you to turn to the book of First John, if you would. First John, it's toward the back. It's after Hebrews and James and Peter. It's before Revelation. First John. Now from time to time, I give you all homework. And I'm going to give you some homework right now. Now, I don't know if you know, maybe you're new here, but homework at reality is mandatory. It's mandatory. It's not a suggestion. It's mandatory. Okay, so here's your mandatory homework, is that you guys would read the book of 1 John this week. It's really short. It's five short chapters. Take you about 10 minutes to read. In fact, it's so short, please read it twice. Read the book of 1 John twice this week and read it before your home group meeting because you'll be talking about it a bit in the home group. But I want you to read it specifically with love in mind. It is the epistle of love. It was written by somebody that I call the apostle of love, namely John. John is the one whom in the book of John, the gospel of John rather, uh, he refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. He is the one that at the Last Supper was reclining on the chest of Jesus. He was reclining on the chest of Jesus. You know, that's a, that's a very intimate expression. We don't really do that as men, do we? I mean, if I were to come down here and, and snuggle my head into Rick's chest and just get cozy, it would get weird for us. It's an incredible act of intimacy that men don't normally do. John so loved the Lord and the Lord so loved John that that night before the cross, he just nuzzled and just nestled his head into the chest of Jesus Christ. He's the apostle of love. And this is his epistle of love. So I want you to read it with love in mind. Now, it's a, a theologically heavy epistle. You might come out, if you're not familiar with reading the Bible or, or some basic theology, you might come out with a lot of questions. That's fine. I just want you to be looking for what it communicates about love as you read it twice this week for your home group. I want us to see a couple verses right now for our purposes. Turn to chapter 4 of 1 John. 1 John chapter 4. 
thinking about again how the whole of our Christian life, the outflow of it ought to be love. It's stated very succinctly here in 1 John chapter 4, verse 11, where it says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Just appealing to basic morality and logic. If God has so loved us, we ought to love one another. Now it gets a little more pungent, if I could use that word, up in verse 7. Look at verses 7 and 8 of 1 John 4. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Even a little stronger now in chapter 3, as we look at verse 14. 1 John 3.14 says this. We know that we have passed out of death and into life. It's talking about being born again. We know that we have been born again because we love the brethren, because we love other Christians. It says, he who does not love abides in death. Listen to this. The Bible says that the very litmus test for whether or not you've been born again is how you love other Christians. The Bible says that it is incongruent, it's inconceivable to be a Christian and yet not love the other Christians around you. And that the true litmus test, whether or not we've been born again, regenerated, made brand new, delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of the beloved Son, is whether or not we love those that God has placed around us as other Christians. It's a defining mark. That's the litmus test and it won't be anything else. And you know, there's a lot of people that think they're Christians and they're not. This terrifies me. Jesus said on the last day, I believe it's in Luke chapter 6, around about verse 46, that people would come and say to him, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? And did we not perform miracles in your name? And he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. But we did cool stuff. I mean, we cast out demons and we did miracles and we did this church thing and we did cool stuff. He'll say, I never knew you. There are those who will presume to be Christian, who will even do Christian things, but in the final analysis are not. And the only true litmus test given to us in the Bible is how we love. Lord, have mercy on me. It says it very clearly now in 1 John chapter 4 again, verses 20 and 21. 1 John 4, 20 and 21, where it says, If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. All right. Enough beating you up. Each one of us now, in the presence of the Holy Spirit, needs to begin to ask, Lord, am I loving the way you've called me to love? Is there something in my heart that's hindering me from loving? Is there an inconsistency in my Christian life? And you need to ask this in the presence of the Holy Spirit, okay? You understand? Because listen, make sure you're in the Spirit when you ask this question. Because the Lord God is merciful and he waits on high to have compassion on you, Isaiah 30 said. But Satan hates you. And he wants you to be condemned. And so if under the influence of the enemy somehow you ask this question, condemnation will rush in. 
And, and if just in a fleshly attitude you ask this question, then there will also be feelings of guilt, you know, because the flesh loves to be religious. And the, and the flesh likes to feel guilty because it somehow wants to justify itself. So you've got to be in the spirit and in the presence of and in the attitude of the Holy Spirit when you ask questions like this. Otherwise, the enemy in the flesh will come to bring condemnation and guilt. But what the Lord wants to do is convict you. There's a difference between conviction and condemnation. Conviction simply means to convince of the truth. The Holy Spirit wants to convince you of truth. And the Holy Spirit is gentle and loving and manifests the Father heart of God who's longing to have compassion on you. So I don't want anybody to feel condemned today. That's of the enemy. I don't want anybody to feel guilty today. That's of the flesh. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But we do need to ask the question, don't we, in the presence of the Lord, Lord, am I doing it right? Am I loving enough? Am I loving like you love me? Am I giving extravagant love? Or am I still caught up in bitterness, anger, wrath, malice? Am I still not able to forgive? Now, when we ask this question, we need to understand that none of us is going to be perfect at loving. That's the Lord. None of us is going to be perfect. Love is one of those things where you never really arrive at it as a Christian. It's like prayer or giving, you know what I mean? No, nobody ever says, uh, oh, I love enough. I've arrived as a Christian. I love like Jesus loves. I'm good in this area. Nobody ever says that. So if you feel that way, you're tripping. It's like prayer. Nobody ever says, oh, yeah, I pray too much. Yeah, I'm overprayed. Pray too much. If you think that, you're tripping. You, you understand? It, it's one of those areas that we're always going to grow in. There's always going to be a deficit and, and some room to grow. And that's because Christianity and its virtues are inexhaustible, as is our God. Amen? You cannot exhaust the glory of God. His ways are unsearchable and inscrutable. And so his catch-ributes, catch-ributes, it's a combination between character and attributes. And so his catch-ributes, in the same way, are inexhaustible. There is always room to grow. There are certain things where you should sort of arrive as a Christian. And those are things having to do with a vertical relationship. I mean, there comes a time where the Christian just has to know that he knows by faith that the Lord loves him or her. You got to know that, man. You got to know that you know by faith that you are forgiven. You must absolutely know that your standing before God is in grace. And you must know that you have the Holy Spirit who is a power for Christian living. There comes a time where we just got to lay hold of these things by faith, these things that are described in the Word of God, where we stop doubting them, we believe them and receive them, and we act upon them. Those things should be solid and sure in our hearts and our minds. But then where we grow is in the then horizontal manifestation of those vertical realities. See, those are truths about our vertical relationship with God. But then the horizontal manifestation is where there's room for growth, in the area of compassion, in the area of kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forgiveness, and most importantly, love. There is always room for you and I to grow. So then really, the, the, the most proper question to ask is, Lord, am I growing in these areas? Am I growing in compassion? 
Am I growing in patience and in humility and in kindness and gentleness? Am I growing in forgiving people? And am I growing in love? And I really believe that there ought to be measurable growth in the Christian life. We're told to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. We like to measure our growth in every other way. You know what I mean? When I was growing up in my mom's house, she had a certain uh, door jam where she would mark our height year after year. And there it was for 25 years. Just dun, 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 dun. I grew till I was 27. There it was just year after year. I didn't live at home till I was 27, but I grew till I was 27. Marking that growth. I, and I, I really believe that we ought to be able to mark our growth as a Christian in these areas. Here's a wonderful way that I do it. I'm very purposeful about it. As I read my Bible, I take notes in it and make prayers in it. And I, when I read a passage about compassion or, or forgiveness or something like that, I will write down a prayer. Lord, help me to forgive so-and-so. Or help me to grow in this area. Or help me to lay hold of that. Or Lord, help me to begin to do this. Or teach me to be kind or gentle. And I'll write those prayers in there and I'll put a date. And now I've got about a decade of prayers and dates in my Bible. And as I return to that in my reading, then I'll pray it again and I'll write it again. And sometimes I've written, oh Lord, no growth at all. Lord, help me. Other places, in all humility and honesty, I write, thank you, Lord, you did it in my life. I grew in that area. But I track my spiritual growth because there needs to be growth. And I think it's important for us to ask the question today, are you growing in the area of loving one another? Is it knowable? Is it discernible? Well, point number two will help us to answer that question as we define what love is. Turn to 1 Corinthians 13, if you would. 1 Corinthians 13, no surprise there. It's the love chapter, popularly. You've heard it at every wedding that you've ever been to. First Corinthians chapter 13. I'm going to give you your second and final homework assignment. Mandatory. In fact, there's going to be a test. We are, we, 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 us, 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 we are together going to memorize 1 Corinthians 13 verses 4 through 8. We're going to memorize verses 4 through 8 because that is the definition of love according to God. And guess what? He's right. That is the true and right definition of love. I'm asking you to memorize this week 1 Corinthians 13 4 through 8. Scripture memorization is one of the most important spiritual disciplines that you can engage in. It has been of huge benefit to my personal and my ministerial life. You must, as a Christian, be committing Scripture to memory. Remember what the psalmist said in Psalm 119, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. We'll learn in a couple weeks in uh, Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, that we are to let the word of Christ dwell richly within us. The Christian is to commit portions of Scripture to memory. And the reason that we do that is not religious. The reason that we do that is very practical. Because when the word gets in, then the life of Jesus comes out. Jesus said that the mouth speaks forth that which overflows the heart. If your mouth is speaking foul things, it's because there's foul things in the heart. 
If foul things are coming from your life, it's a manifestation of your heart. And so what we do is we get the word of God tucked into the heart through memorization. And when you put the word in there, then the Holy Spirit comes in with his transforming power and he begins to transform us and renew us by the washing of the water with the word. It is a renewing and a transforming thing that happens when you memorize the Word of God. The Holy Spirit does it in you. And so each one of us, I believe, raise your hand if I'm wrong, each one of us here agrees today that we need to get better at loving each other. And this will be a most profitable exercise if you memorize those things because as you put them in, the Holy Spirit will see to it that these things begin to come out. And then what we'll do next week at the beginning of service uh, or the Bible teaching, is we'll all stand up together and we'll recite verses 4 through 8 together. It'll be kind of cool because there's different translations, so it's going to sound like tongues and everything, but it'll be rad. <laughs> it'll be cool, but we'll recite it together. Listen, you're doing this with, you know, a lot of other people. Man, if we could all get these things in us and start to love each other in this way. So let, let's see what it says. We'll start in um, verse 1 because it says some very important things here that I alluded to earlier. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. Verse 3, and if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. And now here's a portion that we're going to commit to memory. Verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. And is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly or rude. It does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. Does not rejoice with unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love is never fails. We'll stop our reading right there and you can stop your memorization right there. You're going to memorize just up until that point. This is the true definition of love. The world's got all sorts of ideas about love, primarily that it's some sort of feeling and that you can just fall into it and just as easily as you fell into it, you can fall out of it. And I sit with people, I sit with couples who are getting a divorce, and I say, what's the problem? And they say, well, I just fell out of love. It's from the pit of hell, man. It's not a biblical definition. You can see from this definition that it goes far beyond any feeling. Love is described in the Bible as a series of choices. You choose to love. We choose to be patient because God is patient with us. We choose to be kind because God is kind with us. We choose not to be jealous. We choose not to brag. We choose not to be arrogant. We choose not to be rude. We choose not to seek our own or to demand our own ways. We choose not to rejoice in unrighteousness, but to rejoice in the truth. We choose to bear all things. That is, we choose not to give up. We choose to believe all things. That is, to never lose faith in what things that God said is right. We, we, we choose to hope all things, endure all things. Love is not some superfluous, passing, fleeting feeling. 
It is a biblical, responsible, God-inspired, God-empowered choice that we must make in dealing with one another. This goes true for all sorts of love. You know, the world, it's just, it's, it's, the world, what, what, what? You know, in the world, I could say, I love my dirt bike, I love burritos, and I love my wife. And they had better all mean something different. It's so watered down in the world. What does it really mean? This is what it really means. In any context in which you put it, marriage relationship, family relationship, friends, believers to non-believers, Christians to Christians, whatever context you want to put it in, this is the true definition of love. Now, an exercise that we'll do together right now that, that kind of gauges where we're at with this is to read the passage, but this time, every time it says love, insert your name instead. And just see how it fits. See, see how it fits as a garment, as a description of you, because this is a description of love. See how it fits as a description of you. So, for example, I, I, I read it like this sometimes to, to see where I'm at. Brit is patient. Brit is kind. Brit is not jealous. Brit does not brag. Brit is not arrogant. Brit does not act rude. It doesn't fit. It doesn't fit. I have been doing this exercise for a decade. It just doesn't fit. It's getting better. But, but that just kind of shows me where I'm at because really often I'm pretty arrogant. I know I'm rude. Not as kind as I ought to be. Very impatient man. Really, I need to grow in love before the Lord. I need to commit these things to the memorization of my heart and my spirit and let the Holy Spirit begin to transform me. Now, if it's a little better when I try the opposite. For example, I say Brit is not patient. Brit is mean. Brit is jealous and he brags and he's arrogant and he's rude and he demands his own way and he's irritable. He takes into account a wrong suffer. That fits pretty good. You see, I, I need to grow in these things. I'm, I'm wanting to grow with you guys in these things. I am choosing to let the Holy Spirit teach me to love more. And really, it just requires selflessness. There's a great description of that in Philippians. If you turn there, Philippians, it's back toward Colossians. In fact, it's just before Colossians. Philippians 2. Philippians 2, we'll read verses 1 through 5. It says in verse 1 of Philippians 2, If therefore there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same Spirit, united in Spirit, intent on one purpose. Now here's what's going to facilitate that. That previous verse is who we want to be as a body of believers, amen? That's who we want to be as a church. We want to be of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, and intent on one purpose. Now, here is a prescription that's going to help us in achieving that in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit. 
But with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Once again, we see that Jesus is the example. And that his act of self-sacrifice toward you and I is the motivation and the impetus. He draped himself in humanity, was born a virgin, came to this earth, was mocked, despised, beaten, spit upon, chastised, hung upon the cross for you and I in an act act of self-sacrifice. And so we're called to do the same. To consider others as being more important than ourselves, to do nothing from selfish conceit. In the world, that was fine. I mean, that was normal. I got to look out for number one. And I got to get my own. That's a worldly idea, and that's what the world teaches. But when you become a Christian now, it's a different idea. Jesus gives us a different ideal here, a different standard. There is to be a degree of selflessness. In fact, selflessness is the highest expression of love according to Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 13, Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life. For his friends. There is the highest expression of love that we sacrifice ourselves for others. Now, it's easy to give it lip service. It's easy to say, I would die for so and so. Or I'd give up my life. You know, if, if they were going to die, I would die in their place. It's easy to say that in a hypothetical context. But it's much harder to live it, isn't it? I mean, to really give up our own little wants, maybe desires, agendas, reputation well-being, comfort, status, to give up those things, to promote others, to minister to others, to care for others. Selflessness, Jesus said, that that is the greatest expression of love. Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And I tell you, that doesn't happen in some grandiose idea of getting our heads chopped off. Not here on the coastline but it has to do with the daily little things and the way that we deal each other, give to each other. And it's perfectly exemplified by Jesus once again. Now the final point, the practice of love. How do we do this? Well, we're told back in our text of Colossians 3 verse 14 that we are to put it on. We're to put it on. We're to clothe ourselves in it is the idea. And we talked about that in our previous study in Colossians. We're to clothe ourselves in these things. We're to put off the other things, anger, wrath, malice, so on and so forth. And we're to just put on love. Now, when we do that, we're told in our text it's a perfect bond of unity. Or it's what ties everything perfectly together. Meaning in the analogy of clothing, it was that final garment that they would put on in the Orient at that time. It was like a girdle or a belt. It was a final thing that they would wrap around themselves that would hold everything else together. And encompassed in that were those other articles that we were told to put on in verses 12 and 13. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, forgiveness, so on and so forth. They are all held together by, encompassed in, this act or this garment of love. And there is also inherent in that idea, the act that, or the idea that it is love that binds us together. Because you know as a family there's going to be a lot that would seek to see us ripped apart. You see, according to the definition of Jesus, we are the greatest witnesses for him when we love one another, church. 
That's when we are most potent, most powerful. That's when the gospel most radically exudes from our lives is when we're loving one another. And so isn't it just, you know, sort of logical to think that then maybe the first place that the enemy would attack is how we love each other? I mean, that's the first thing that he would want to do to destroy the witness of you and I as a Christian body on this coastline is to come in and cause division. Is to come in and hinder us from loving each other. Now, it's going to get sketchy in the church together. Because again, you you don't get to choose who you're a Christian with. People get saved, deal with it. You may be very different, but we are called to love one another. And you know, the church, the church is a trippy thing. The church is kind of like Noah's Ark. You know, when, when you come into the church, it's warm and it's safe and it's comfortable and you're all kind of in the same boat and you're, you're kind of feeling safe from the storm that is raging outside and it seems so good for a time. But if you were in Noah's Ark for any time at all, you would begin to discern the stench. But you would also, if you were wise, be quick to realize, wow, it stinks up in this joint, but I am a part of the problem. Right? I mean, the church is kind of like Noah's Ark, you know. Seems so nice for a while, and then, wow, this is funky up in here. And I'm part of the problem, and you're part of the problem, so we need to pick up a shovel and start cleaning. We need to do some house cleaning. I love what John MacArthur says. He says, Love is the beauty of the believer, dispelling the ugly sins of the flesh that destroy unity. And so we're called to put it on above all else. How do we practically do that? Well, as we already mentioned, we choose to do that. You just choose. Now, it's not an arbitrary, unpowered choice. It's not like, oh, I'm going to buy a new car or I'm you know, going to mow my lawn. You've got to understand that it is a choice made in the context of the fact that we have become new creations. That we have been redeemed, we've been made brand new. It's made in the context of the fact that sin is no longer power over you and that you have the power of the Holy Spirit to do these things. You must understand today that God's commandments are His enablements. God never commands you within the new covenant to do anything that he will not empower you to do. I want you to memorize that little saying, God's commandments are his enablements. And so when God commands us to love one another, you can bank on the fact that he is going to enable us to do so by the power of the Holy Spirit. God's commandments are his enablements. That is simply the way that he works. You just got to tap into the power source. Listen, the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. The fruit of the Spirit is those nine things, but it starts first with love. I want you to know that the Bible says it is the fruit of the Spirit, not the labor of the flesh or not the act of religion. It is the fruit of the Spirit. It's a wonderful thing about fruit. Fruit is the byproduct of the intaking of some very basic things. If you plant an orange tree and you want it to bear fruit, you've got to give it nutrients. It's got to have good soil. It's got to have some nutrients to feed on. You've got to give it water. And you've got to give it sunlight. 
And then if that tree has nutrients and water and sunlight, the byproduct of those things coming in is fruit going out. It is the byproduct. You put those things in and fruit will come forth. You've never driven by a well-cared-for orange orchard and heard the trees going, Ugh! Oh, just if I could just fruit. Ugh! They don't do that. It's a ridiculous thought. They either have fruit or they don't. They don't have to strive for it. And what assures that they bear fruit is that they have nutrients, water, and sun. Listen to me very carefully. What will assure that you have the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life is the nutrients of the Word of God. You feast upon the Word of God. You cultivate time drinking from the water of the Holy Spirit. And you spend time basking in the sun, the S-O-N, Jesus Christ. And fruit is going to come forth from your life. Jesus said it this way, if you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. If you don't abide in me, it's impossible for you to do anything. If we abide in him, drawing our nutrients from the word of God, drawing the water from the presence and the power and the work of the Holy Spirit, and just basking in his glory and the sun, this is going to come forth from your lives, Christian. But I find when I get short with people, it's because my time has been short with God. Anybody testify? When I get short with people, I know it is because my time has been short with God. When I am spending the right time with the Lord, just cultivating that time, receiving the nutrients of the Word and the water, the Spirit and the light of the sun, when I'm just marinating in that relationship, you can pretty much come up and poke me in the eye and spit in my ear and I'll love you. I mean, it's just, you know, I've received so much from the vertical, it just flows to the horizontal. But when I haven't spent time with the Lord, you could come up and say, Britt, I love you, and you have the wrong tone in your voice. I might bite your head off. That's who I am in the flesh. And so it, it's a real clear gauge for me when I start getting snappy and short. When I'm able to say, Britt is not patient, Britt is not kind, he is jealous and he brags and he boasts, so on and so forth. It's because my time has been short with the Lord. We can only love this way by the power of the Holy Spirit because it is a fruit of the Spirit and it only comes through living an intimate life with Jesus Christ. Now then in that, we look for practical opportunities. Putting on love, part of that is in looking for practical opportunities. 1 Thessalonians 4.9 says, now, or, or excuse me, uh, 1 John 3.18 says, Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. Extra credit for you this week on your homework. Find somebody and love them in some tangible way. It says in deed and in truth. Not just, a, oh, bro, I love you. But I mean, do something. God doesn't really say a whole lot in the Bible, I love you. He just draped himself in humanity and went to the cross for you and I and shouted to all the universe, I love these people. We're called to love the same way. Extra credit, love somebody in deed and in truth this week. And the last thing I'll say, what it means practically to practice love is to do that very thing to practice. You want to get good at anything, you got to practice at it, right? Don't you? You got to practice at it and there's spiritual practices. And the verb put on throughout Colossians 3, in the original Greek, it's in the tense that it means this, do it immediately and repeatedly. Put on love, put on compassion, put on humility. It means to do it immediately and repeatedly. And so we need to practice loving people. Put on love and keep loving 
It says it this way in 1 Peter 4 eight. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Keep fervent. Keep it hot. Keep it firing on all eight cylinders. Keep it going. Keep practicing loving one another. Romans 12.10 says it this way. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. We're devoted to so many things. We can all have things in our life that we identify. I'm devoted to these things. But the Bible says, but above all, we're to be devoted to brotherly love. Devoted to it. We're to keep fervent, to keep hot, to keep active, and to make it a priority and to be purposeful about it, all the while realizing that it comes forth from our lives as the fruit of the Holy Spirit when we allow Him to impact, transform, and empower us by just being with Jesus. Amen? Amen. Okay, so listen. Let's ask the Lord to help us. Anybody need help on this gig? Okay. All right, let's ask the Lord. Lord, we need help. We see the perfect example of your love. We hear very clearly the command to love as you have loved us, but we say together we need help. We get so messed up by the flesh and, well, the enemy, we don't want to give him too much credit, but he does mess with us a bit, Lord. But you're the conquering king. You're the ruler. You're our savior, our redeemer. You own us. We want to be defined by love that comes from you. And so, Lord, we just open up our hearts as best as we know how now. And as we sing songs, we just want to open our heart to you and say, okay, Lord, come in here and deal with things that are contrary to love. Come and deal with anger and wrath and malice. Come and deal with rebellion, which is like witchcraft. Come and deal with these things, Lord. And we pray together now what is written in Romans 5, 5. The Holy Spirit, you would pour abroad the love of the Father in our hearts. Oh, Lord, I think that's when we're really going to love is when we see in the most incredible way a revelation of your love. Pour it out, Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come and pour the love of the Father into our hearts and through our lives. Holy Spirit, come and fill us afresh with your power. We need power to do these things, Lord. We need your transforming power in our lives. And so do it now, Holy Spirit. Fill us and pour on to us the love of the Father. And as we memorize Scripture this week and read Scripture, transform us, Holy Spirit, through the Holy Word. Transform us, Lord. Change us into your image. Teach us to love one another. We know we sin a lot. We just want to learn to love a lot. Thank you, Lord.